Well, what's up, OneChurch.tv? My name is Carlo, and I get to be the teaching pastor here at One Church. So excited that you are with us. Shout out to everyone watching over in the overflow, watching online, live, or catching the video podcast later in the week. We're so glad that you chose to connect with us. We're kicking off a brand new series uh, titled How to Be a Hero, and we're going to really focus on uh, a couple of central truths about the Easter story over the next few weeks through this theme, How to Be a Hero, and we're really excited about that there's one thing that fame and politics and family and friends all have in common, and that one thing is drama. When you think about movies, it's the, the tension and the action and the romance and the drama that draws us to it. When you think about fame and, and who's doing what with who and who's going where with who and celebrity and all that, we get caught up in the drama. You talk about your friends, and it, it often becomes about what so-and-so said about me, and he said, she said, and, and see what had happened was, and we get caught up in the Drama. Politics is the drama industry, right? Family. Even some of you, you're worried about Uncle Rufus coming to your Easter dinner and getting all drunk and acting crazy, right? Drama. Drama is, is what the headlines are made for. Drama is what draws you and me into story and surprise and suspense. It's what captivates us. Think about how even through social media, through the daily news cycle, we're drawn to stories because of their drama, the tension the uncertainty that's created by all of these things. And so with drama, we know there's usually a hero and there's usually a villain. And so we're really going to unpack that over these next couple of weeks in this series. The thing is, we say we want to be drama-free. We say that. Save the drama for who? Your mama. That's what we say, right? Save the drama. We, don't, we say we want to be drama-free, but if we're honest, drama is really at the center of all of our lives. So a question we're going to wrestle with over these next few messages is, could there actually be a drama in our life that is good, that's healthy for us? As we approach the drama of the Easter story, we're going to explore this powerful truth that everybody is included in the story that God is writing, and the story that God is writing often includes drama. So today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 14 in the Old Testament. We'll get there in just a few seconds. So who, who is your favorite hero? Well, think about superheroes. It could be an athlete. It could be a person in life. Heroes come in all shapes and sizes. Some of us, it could be a parent. It could be, you know, just someone we look up to, we admire. But when I think of the word hero, I first think of superhero. My favorite superhero is the Incredible Hulk. Um, But my favorite heroes, uh, although they're fictional, um, they're not superheroes, but they have a great, great story. See, in in 1972, uh, a crack commando unit was sent to a prison for a crime they didn't commit. Um, these men promptly escaped from a, a maximum security stockade prison into the Los Angeles underground. And today they survive as soldiers of fortune. So if you have a problem and no one else can help you, and if you can find them, maybe you too can hire the A-team. My favorite. I love them. My heroes. I grew up as a kid loving the A-team. I wanted to be a part of the A-team so bad. Some of you guys who are part of an A-team say it's not all it's cracked up to be, right? But, you know, I wanted to be a part of the A-team so bad. I found it fascinating how they could get out of just about any jam. And the best part of the show was the plan, right? They would usually come to the aid of someone, a damsel in distress type, someone who was being persecuted by some thug, some drug dealer, some corrupt politician in some backwoods town, and they'd come and they'd beg them. So the A-team, they'd they'd go through a series of disguises and cons and little twists just to kind of discover the weakness of the bad guy 
And then once the tension was fully built, then they would un- unleash this awesome plan. They'd usually show a montage of them, like, taking some Gorilla Glue and some staples and some orange juice and turning it into bombs, you know. And they'd take tractor equipment and turn it into a tank. And they would just do all this awesome stuff, uh, blow up a lot of things, people getting shot at. You know, no one ever really died on the A-team. For a crack commando unit, they weren't the best at marksmanship. But nevertheless, it was good, cheesy 80s TV, lots of stuff, explosions and vehicles flipping. And at the end, when everything was saved, Hannibal, their boss, would say, I love it when a plan comes together. And then the A-team would slink away on to the next town. Great show. I love it. But as an adult, when I went back and, and tried to rewatch the, the A-Team, which I don't encourage you to do that, you know, if you were in love with Airwolf or something cheesy in the 80s, I promise you, if you go watch Knight Rider now, you're going to question your existence because that show is terrible. But when I was eight, it was the best thing in the world. So I went back as an adult and, and was really troubled by what I found in the A-Team. See, although they are falsely accused, they're really just fugitives from justice who justify their criminal behavior by doing good works. Like, that's a whole different sermon right there on, on what's messed up with the A-Team. They're really just a bunch of criminals doing the wrong thing. They also operate under a facade, so they can never really be authentic or open up to people because no one can really know their true identity. And really what it comes down to is the drama of their past ultimately hurts their future. They, even their best laid plans don't free them from the reality of their drama. No matter how much my heroes try to scheme their way out of it and resist the reality of their drama, their best laid plans, they just, they don't compare to the reality of their drama. And you know, this is just a TV show, but so many of those things apply to so many of you. You run through life running from your drama instead of confronting it, dealing with it, owning it. Asking God the tough questions. Why am I in this? What are you trying to do? And everybody wants to be a hero. Every, everyone admires heroes, but there's a difference between admiring a hero and being a hero, and that difference is drama. The difference is drama. See, if you're honest, you're attracted to the drama in other people's lives, but you hate drama in your own life. You resist the drama in your own life, but you can't get enough of it in other people's life. That's why we're intrigued by storytelling. That's storytelling 101. Everything is going good, then everything starts going bad, then there's tension and there's struggle and there's conflict, and then the hero comes in and saves the day, and they live what? Happily ever after, and it's resolved. But if you look at stories, we understand that most of the story is the drama. The introduction is quick. The resolution is quick. The credits roll and it's over. Most of the time we spend sitting in seats just like this, meeting in a theater, is actually watching the tension build and the drama build and the climax. It leads towards the drama. That's what most of our stories are. The fights, the change, the challenges, the emotion. Could it be that when we resist drama, we're actually resisting God? That leads us to our big idea. The moments we hate the most may be the moments in which God is writing the greatest story. So again, no one likes the drama. It's a fact of life. And even when we look at the story of Jesus, we see in him someone who overcame tons of drama to do what? To save the world. So we're going to press into this over the next few weeks. Today, we're going to look at this Old Testament story that I think shows us how God uses drama to write a better story. And it's in Exodus 14. I'm going to start reading in verse 5. It says this, When word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done letting all these Israelite slaves get away, they asked. 
So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot, called up his troops. He took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots, along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So he chased after the people of Israel, who had left with fists raised in defiance. And the Egyptians chased after them with all the forces in Pharaoh's army, all his horses and chariots, and his troops. And the Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near Piharoth, across from Baal Zephon. The Israelites were in a situation we would consider being stuck between a rock and a hard place. Stuck between a rock and a hard place. Two opposing forces coming at us. To go to the left is doom. To go to the right is doom. To literally be bounced back and forth and back and forth between two restricting forces. And here's the thing that stinks about being stuck between a rock and a hard place. No matter which way you choose, there's going to be some pain. There's going to be some discomfort. There's going to be some unknown and many of us, we just don't, whether it's we don't have the faith, we don't have boldness, we just, we would rather go back to the way things were than make the tough decision, make the choice. We don't like to step in to discomfort. We like to ask God to take us out of uncomfortable situations. But maybe he's putting us in the drama for a reason because the uncomfortable situation is what he's going to use to help us. So we get stuck between a rock and a hard place. And this is exactly what was happening to the, the nation of Israel and that story we just read. To really set the stage, you'd have to read the last couple of chapters of the first book of the Bible, which is Genesis, and then the first 13 chapters of Exodus to really unpack what's going on. Obviously, we don't got that kind of time, so here's the long short of it. Israel, they've been living in slavery in Egypt. God worked a lot of miracles to set them free, and now they are stuck between where they were and where they want to be. Some of you, that's where you're at right now today in one church stuck between where you were and where you want to be. So these people here, they have this massive Egyptian army. The Israelites have this massive Egyptian army. I didn't do the count, uh, but he said all a whole lot in that passage. All of his horses, all of the army, all of the chariots, this massive army, 600 of the best chariots along with all of the other forces of one of the greatest fighting forces uh, known to, on, on earth at that time. They are chasing after the people of Israel. If you, to do your history lesson, this means that the military might of Egypt was chasing a bunch of bricklayers, a bunch of shepherds. That's all they'd done for hundreds of years was farm and lay bricks. They were slaves. They were chasing behind them. Could you imagine the scene, the tension? Could you imagine the fear as they looked back? Because they were camped at the shore. So maybe they woke up that morning, someone to start breakfast, and they look, and there's the Egyptian army breathing down your neck. That was what was behind them. What was in front of them? The massive Red Sea, 1,400 miles long, 221 miles wide at its widest part, an average depth of 1,600 feet, 56,000 cubic miles of water. That's what they were facing. So they did what you and I would naturally do in a situation like that, stuck between a rock and a hard place. They were terrified and they cried. Lots of snot, lots of tears, lots of beating their chest. They freaked out. Seriously, they freaked out. And there's a couple things that, that jumped out to me. Verse 10, as Pharaoh approached them, the people of Israel looked up 
and panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. And you might say, well, duh, I would panic too if I looked up and saw that happening. But I like, I applaud the fact that they at least looked up and recognized that things are bad. So many times we resist drama because we refuse to, re- to face the reality of our situations. I'm not talking about letting the circumstances control us and, and having our emotions bounce all over the place. I'm talking simply realizing that this situation sucks and I need God. Can I say that? I just did. This situation sucks and I need God. Help me. He's the only one that can help you. So, so we have to stop living in this fantasy world where bad things aren't going to happen to me because I'm in Christ or where I'm not going to have to deal with tension and anxiety because, well, I'm a Christian and I'm supposed to have his peace that passes all understanding. Why do you think he gives you that peace to handle the drama that you're going to be in? That peace doesn't remove the drama out of your life. It helps you get through it. Some of us have this massive wave of drama problems, difficult people, difficult situations that are facing us, and we're building castles in the sand playing games instead of looking up and facing the reality. So I like the fact that they looked up. As, verse 10, as Pharaoh approached the people of Israel, looked up, they looked up and they panicked when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord, Verse 11, and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? So they cried out to the Lord, and then they cried out to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It is better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Now, they know they didn't say all that to Moses, right? But in that moment, they were like, what are you doing to us? But again, I applaud the fact that even for a moment, they at least cried out to God. They at least cried out to God first, and then they complained to Moses. So they, they really did some negative things, but at least they, they, their gut instinct was to do the right thing and cry out to God. Verse 13, but Moses told the people, Don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. So let's unpack that just for a little bit. Normally, when a person is in a serene or unstimulated state, the firing of neurons in your your brain stem, they're minimal at best. So a calm, relaxing state comes over your body. You get nice and chill. Have you ever zoned off, just zoned out? I hope you're not doing that right now because I'll find you, right? But we get a little bit sleepy. These chairs are comfortable. We got this nice blue lighting. It's warm. It's washing over you. You're starting to go to sleep. You're getting relaxed, right? And everything is cool. And then someone yells and stress. And, it, and something jumps out to you. By the way, if that startled you, have you been to a movie theater before? That's what happens in movie theaters, right? It's dark, it's quiet, and then bang! And all of a sudden, your heart rate goes up, and you, your, your pupils dilate, and you become alert, and those neurons start firing, and you start this rush of hormones going through your body, and all that adrenaline creates this physiological response to the stress. Your stomach gets upset. Your mouth gets a little bit dry. If you've ever been in a fight here in the room, like a real fight, not a Facebook fight, but like hand-to-hand fight with someone, you know you start to get that tunnel vision, right? That warm washes over you. Everything starts to slow down as your body prepares for this stress. And what I just described, that's basically what we refer to as our fight or our flight syndrome. When stre- Or fight, flight, 
or freeze. When stress is introduced in a rapid manner like that, physiologically, that's what we do. Our body gets us ready to do one of those three things, or one of those two things. If we malfunction, then we just freeze up. And in the story we just read, Israel just had a huge amount of stress introduced into their lives. Basically, when stress comes, we freeze up or we freak out. And they opted for plan B, freak out. They said, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out here? Basically, to know this story, you have to know that for years, hundreds of years, the people of Israel begged God, deliver us, save us, set us free, deliver us, save us, set us free. And God said, all right, I heard you, quit asking. And he sends them Moses. And Moses does exactly what they ask God to do. Moses is used by God to do what? Set them free. And there they are, right on the verge of freedom and slavery. But to take a step into freedom is too hard. And so they say, why would you bring us out here? We just want to die. They lost their minds. They said it would be better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. That's insane. Could you imagine? Being, maybe you can imagine being in such a desperate place like that, that you would say it's better to go back to slavery than to walk into the unknown, even if the unknown means freedom. They resisted the drama. We do the same thing. Well, I don't even know why I try. Well, I'm leaving that church. I'm never talking to this person again. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to show them. I don't need anyone. We, we get utterly irrational when we're faced with extreme drama like this. Why? Because when we're stuck between a rock and a hard place, we give in, we do wild things because we don't like being uncomfortable. We don't like the tension. So the solution when we're stuck in between that rock and a hard place in that drama is to do what Moses said. Moses told them, stand firm and see the deliverance of the Lord. What he's telling them to do is to stand and trust the promises of God. Stand and trust what God has already done for you. He brought them that far. Moses is trying to remind them, didn't God do all these great works to get us this far? He's not going to fail us. And I would say to some of us here today, didn't God bring you a long way? Think about where you were before you met Jesus. Think about where you were before you said yes to him. And it doesn't matter where you are right now. You are not who or where you used to be. And the same God that brought you this far, right to the edge of the Red Sea, is not just going to let you drown. He's not just going to let things end. In fact, I love what the New Testament tells us that he who begins a good work in us is going to see it through to completion. Verse 13, Moses says, listen, Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Stand firm. Stay calm. Why? Because the same God who brought you this far, he's about to show up and he's going to fight for you. So when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, we don't ask why. We should ask who. Who? When stuck in the middle of drama, we don't ask why am I in this drama. We ask who. Moses is reminding the people here, trust God. Don't get fixated on this big army that's behind you. Don't get so caught up in this massive body of water that's in front of you. Instead, let's fix our mind on who. Who brought us here? Who made the promises? And who is going to keep us going forward? Verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. 
This is a fascinating turn in the story. Up until this point, there's been a lot of people crying out to God, a lot of people crying out to Moses. And when God finally shows up and speaks, he says, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Parents can confuse the fire out of their children sometimes. Absolutely. I grew up uh, with an older brother, two younger sisters, and we always got into trouble. My younger sister would like you to think that she is just innocent and never did anything wrong, but most of the trouble we got into revolved around her. Something we didn't do, something she did that we took the blame for. Uh, that was how it was for uh, a couple of years. So actually, I told you before, if you've heard any of me talk about my family, I'm a middle child, and, and I really did feel stuck because my brother Eddie was also the one always causing trouble, always getting us into something, sneaking people into the house. His friend snuck in our attic and stepped through the roof, and his foot was hanging through the ceiling. And so we came up with an A-team-like plan on how to trick our grandfather to come over and fix it. And it was just, it, it all, of course, it all fell apart, uh, ended up in some whoopings. But that was an average day in the life in our house, right? By come 5, 6 p.m., we knew it was, it was the great throne of judgment. Some revelation-type apocalyptic whoopings were about to happen because uh, my mom would keep the list and wait till your father comes home. That's the kind of household we grew up in, right? Thank God that he doesn't deal with us according to our sins like that. He forgives us, right? We don't, we don't have to sit in that judgment. But yeah, my... She'd keep this list. Here's all the things that we were done. So we knew between 5.30 and dinner time, someone was getting a whooping today. Just about every day of the week, except for Saturday and Sunday. That's when my dad relaxed, right? But it wasn't abuse. It was discipline, right? Hey, I turned out to be a preacher. Quit judging my parents, right, before I come up there and, and find you. Seriously, we... It was always something, always in trouble, always this. And so we'd, I'd, I'd be getting grilled for something I didn't do at school or homework I didn't turn in or why did you throw the garbage out behind the bush instead of just walking five extra steps to the trash can? I did things like that all the time, you know, like why did you set that on fire? Why did you slap that kid? Why did you steal this thing? That was just a, a, a day in the life of our, our household. God bless my parents. I don't to think about it. We were, we were uh, pretty messy uh, family. So I'd be getting interrogated by mom. Boy, what's wrong with you? Why did you do this? What's and so you know? I told you a couple weeks ago. Once I started talking, I didn't shut up. So I I put on full Perry Mason lawyer mode. Well, Mother Exhibit A would tell you, you know, if you remember on the third, this is actually what you said. You didn't literally mean I was that kid. uh, You know, just trying to rip apart her argument. That's not smart when you're ten. But I tried really, really hard, and she would get so mad. Boy, you better be quiet when I'm talking to you. You heard that before? You better not say another word. Well, if you say one more word, I'm going to come. Right? It would just be that you better stop talking. So I would freeze up. Remember what the lesson I just taught you, right? Stress was introduced into my life, so I would panic, and the adrenaline, I'd, and I'd panic. I'd freeze up and get the deer in the headlights and just be quiet. But then she'd say, why did you do it? Why did you do it? And then she'd grab me. Boy, you better answer me when I'm talking to you. And I'm like, wait a minute. You just told me not to say another word, and now you're mad that I'm not talking to you and get all confused. And so, parents, if you ever see that glazed-over look your middle schooler has when you're confronting something silly that they just did, first, have mercy on them. Their brains aren't fully developed yet, so there's a whole lot they can't control. That's real, right? Uh, but you're confusing them. You can't tell them to be quiet and answer you at the same time. They don't have the capacity. Uh, we love our student ministry, right? But just keeping it real. They don't have the mental capacity to keep up with all of that stress and that drama. When I read that scripture, that's exactly how I felt. I felt like, God, why are you confusing these people? First, you told them, stand firm and see the salvation of God. And then you say, why are you still talking to me? Get moving. 
Stand firm, be calm. Why are you still praying? Keep moving. See, God had this awesome thing in store, this miracle in store for these people, but he couldn't perform. I shouldn't say couldn't. He would not perform that miracle until they stopped resisting the drama. Until they stopped resisting him, he wasn't going to show up and do what they had to do. So he, he wanted them to understand he was going to use that moment for something great. So many of us, if I took a survey of this room and asked you, how many of you want a miracle in your life? What's a miracle? Something that can only be explained by, hey, God did that. Whether it's in a relationship, whether it's in your money, whether it's some of you, you're just so desperate to break an addiction, break a habit. Some of you, you're here and you're on empty and you just want to feel full and feel alive again. And you know only God can do that. And I believe only God can do that. But in order to receive that miracle, here's the way God works. He sticks us between an ocean and the Egyptian army. That's what he does. Stuck between the rock and the hard place. No matter which way we go, there's going to be some pain. There's going to be some comfort. But in the end, if we trust him, if we have faith in him, he always, always wins. So we want the miracle. Everybody wants the miracle, but no one wants the drama. We resist the drama. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but I'm convinced. If Israel had said, you know what? We've been in the desert laying bricks. We're not messing with that water. And they turned around and started to fight the Egyptians. I'm convinced they would have annihilated the Egyptian army. Bunch of shepherds and bricklayers. Why? Because it was God's plan to deliver them from Egypt. So I think in that moment, if they would have turned around and started fighting God, but God had a different plan. Last verse we're going to read today, uh, verse 16. God tells Moses, pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. So this is, this is tough. Because God had performed tons of miracles over and over and over and over again through Moses to help these people. And so God's solution to their drama was actually more drama. Imagine yourself being Moses. You just did all these miracles like if you read in, in Exodus 20, if you read in, in the Exodus, not Exodus 20, but you read earlier on in Exodus, all of the, the miracles that happened for the Egyptians to get, folks, it rained frogs. I mean, pretty weird stuff happened. Like the water turned into blood. All the firstborn of the Egyptians died. Like all the sun, just crazy, crazy Miracles that happened. And every time Moses was kind of at the scene, raising his staff, doing something insane. And I'm sure Moses in that moment, here's God say, pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water and the Israelites will walk over. And I would just, I really think Moses said, I hate this part. Thanks, God. So your answer is do something else wild. (laughs) That's the Carlo version. Do something else crazy, right? Seriously, we're going to walk through that. Moses didn't have a calculator, so he didn't know the math. 56,000 cubic feet of water. We're going to walk through that on dry ground. Okay, here we go. God's solution to their drama was more drama. And Moses and all the people probably thought, oh, no, I hate this part. Because it meant they'd have to do something they'd never done before, experience the unknown. Some of you would have stood on that shore and died because you just couldn't get over. How's the water going to stay up? I don't, have my, I don't have my aqua shoes on. I, there's mud there. Oh, I don't do salt water. I don't want to get my hair messed up. Some of y'all would have died standing on that beach 
because you couldn't figure out how God was going to get you across. Resisting it. Resisting the temptation, saying, I hate it. But we know the rest of the story, right? What happens? They cross through. They get to the other side. The Egyptians say, we can do that too. The water crashes in, and there it is. God performs the mighty miracle. It never would have happened had they not followed God's plan. What part of your life do you hate right now? What decision do you face that you really wish you didn't have to deal with? What needs to happen to get you to take a step towards God, take another step towards Jesus? What army is advancing towards you? What ocean do you face? Are you resisting the drama or are you trusting God to use that drama to help you? So what do we do with this? There's, there's a couple of reactions, I think, that'll help us deal with the drama in our life. The first thing is this. What do we do? We look up. We look up. The Egyptians did that. The Israelites did that, and I think that's good practice. We look up. They looked up and cried out to God. We look up. We pray this prayer. Lord, open my eyes to see exactly what you want me to see in this situation. Lord, help me. Lord, what are you doing with me, in me, in this situation? I'm not one to say pray like scripted prayers, but this is a prayer you should write down and practice this prayer. When stress comes, when drama comes, Lord, what are you teaching me in this moment? Lord, what exactly do you want me to see in this situation? I've been a pastor for a long time, and sometimes I see that phone number on my caller ID, and I look up, Lord, why? Don't laugh too hard because I might be talking about you. I'm just saying, Lord, why? Why? Why again? Oh, here we go. We get that email. Oh, Lord. I think it's a good practice, though. Because when I say, God, you got this, he helps me, gives me the words to say, Lord, open my eyes to see exactly what you're doing in this situation. And then stand firm. Stand firm. Don't resist the drama, but stand firm. That means read God's promises about your situation. What does God say about your financial pain? What does God say about your anxiety? What does God say about your heartache? What does God say about your stress? What does God say about your temptation? Read God's promises and then stand firm on his truth. What does he say about it? That's the truth I'm going to hold on to. This person's coming at me. They're accusing me. But here's what Jesus tells me to do when people treat me that way, to bless them, to love them, to pray for them, to be merciful, to show kindness, to walk in that way. So that's what I'm going to do. So you write those verses down. Go buy you a, go to Dollar Tree, buy some yellow sticky pads, write them down. Place those Bible verses everywhere you might encounter that stress. Put it in your car. Put it on your window. Put it on your mirror, your bathroom mirror. Put it on your desk so when you encounter that stress, that drama, that junk, you can stand firm on God's promises. And then move forward. Get busy living. I'm so tired of people trying to pray their way out of situations that they worked their way into. They dramaed their way into the situation, and so they just stand still talking to God about it. And many times he's saying, why are you crying out to me? I already heard you the seventh time you prayed that. Get busy. Move forward. He's giving you his word. He's giving you the church. He's giving you direction. Start living. Don't resist the drama because you can't get to happily ever after if you stay stuck. Instead, you choose to respond with love. You choose to respond with joy. Move forward. And then finally, embrace the drama. Understand that if I'm in Christ... There's going to be drama. Everybody is a part of the story that God is writing, and the story that God is writing always includes drama. So are you trusting God with your drama, or are you just trusting his ability to help you be comfortable?
Are you trusting God to teach you, to grow you, to stretch you, or are you just trusting him to make the pain go away so that you don't have to deal with the situation? I pray you would trust him to grow you through that. When you're going through a season of drama, instead of focusing on why, let's start focusing on who. Let's start focusing on who. That's the more important question than why am I dealing with this? Who are we going to trust in times of drama? Who are we going to turn to with the reality of that pain? Who is worthy of our trust? Let's trust God. This week, bring that circumstance that you hate the most before God in prayer. And rather than asking him to remove the circumstance or remove the person, start asking God, what are you doing in the middle of this pain, God? What are you doing through this? And if you're bold enough, ask God how he wants you to respond to it. The moments we hate the most may be the moments in which God is writing the greatest story. Let's pray. God, thank you for your truth. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for hearing us when we call out to you. I thank you, God, that there is nothing that can separate me from your love, and there is no trial, no situation that I'm ever going to face that you're not big enough to see me through. So I thank you that you use the pain and the drama of life to create something beautiful inside of me and inside of all of us. God, for the person here who's not yet said yes to you, I pray this would be the day they take that next step. Say, God, forgive me, help me. I want to follow you into that unknown, trusting you. And I know, God, you'll provide for them every single step of the way. For those of us, God, resisting drama, help us to start to see we may be resisting you. This doesn't mean that we need to be dramatic people, people of chaos. Instead, God, it means we trust you that you're using the pain, you're using the tense situation to teach us something. So help us to learn the lesson. Thank you for your grace. And more than all of that, thank you for saving us. Thank you for showing up and through Jesus giving us that happily ever after, providing for us, God, eternity with you, power to live this life. We're so thankful for it. And we're so thankful, God, that you allow us to go through these things to just become closer to you and to become more like you. God, thank you for all that you do. And thank you for saving us in the strong name of Jesus.